Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right, so uh, we're in John here, and, and we're, we're starting a new chapter in John this week. We're into John 9, and my goal this morning is we're making it through the whole chapter. Can you believe it? I'm, okay, maybe you can't. I don't know. But we're, yeah, we're, our goal is we're going to get through this whole chapter. This, this one just works really well together. In chapters like John 8, we kind of split it up into three messages, and, and it, was, it was full even just like that. But uh, John 9, we're going to be able to, to tackle the whole thing in one shot here. So the scene, the scene in John chapter 9, it's changed slightly. In John 8, which we finished last week, Jesus was at the temple. And now Jesus has left the temple and is walking in the city of Jerusalem. But based on some of the details that we read uh, today, Jesus isn't too far from the temple. So we'll pray here and then we'll, we'll begin with John 9 verse 1. Lord God, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning. We know that it is uh, the key for us to understand you. Your Holy Spirit and your word, they work together. They help us to know who this God is that we have given our life to. And we we are so glad that you've given us your word. The Bible is so massively important. I pray that as we read this this chapter today, you would impress on us the, the lessons that we need to learn. Each and every one of us is at a different place in our walk with you. And we know that you, God, are, are not a one-dimensional God. You meet every single one of us where we're at in this life. So we pray that you would speak to us, that we would hear your word, desire to apply it, and that we would live our lives for your glory as a result of what you're going to say this morning. Amen, Father. All right, so here we go in John 9, verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had, been born, who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, the reason the disciples asked this question is because in Jesus' day, it was actually common. It was a regular cultural belief for people to, to think that unusual suffering like blindness was a result of someone's sin. So here's how Jesus answers his disciples' inquiry. In verse 3, he says, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him today. All right. So this is an interesting answer. It's actually, I think it's pretty wild to think about Jesus' answer and have him say, Actually, here's the plan, guys. This guy was born blind so that I can knock your socks off. I mean, that's a loose translation, of course, but that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus has revealed that it wasn't sin, but it's actually God's will that this man was born blind because today God's power is going to be seen in his life. So Jesus is foreshadowing here about the miracle, about healing this man that is about to take place. And this healing will show God's awesome power to the people who need to know Jesus or who need to know God by personally trusting in Jesus. So then Jesus says something next that is so important for us to understand. He's just said, okay, hey, you know, it wasn't sin. It was God and the power of God is going to be seen in this man today. And in verse 4 he says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. So adding to the foreshadowing of this healing miracle that we're going to read about in a moment, Jesus is speaking about doing the tasks 
or the work that God assigns to those who are committed to him as his followers. Now, did you notice that Jesus says, we, we must carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. He's speaking about himself, of course. He includes himself in we, but he's also speaking to his 12 disciples. But you and I are also Jesus' disciples. We've put our faith in Jesus, and now we're meant to live like Jesus lived. So this invitation here, we must carry out the tasks assigned us, is a message that God is speaking to you and I this morning as well. Personally, I get really excited. And I'm, I'm not joking. I get really excited when I read about God giving me a task that he would want to include me in when it comes to serving him. What God assigns us to do in our life, I I think it's extremely satisfying to participate in it. It gives our lives purpose. It gives our lives meaning, adventure, and joy when we see the task or the work that God has for his people and we begin to enter into it. As a result of us believing in Jesus, every one of us has been called by God to join him in the work of building his kingdom in the lives of people here on earth. And the idea of carrying out tasks for God on earth, it kind of reminds me of what Ephesians 2 verse 10 says. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Jesus Christ. And here's why. So we can do the good things he planned long ago or for us long ago. So this verse is telling us that we've been saved from our old life of sin and we've been created anew. The, the old person, the old Jeff Peters in my instance, ceased to exist when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And now, because I'm following him, I'm doing life with Jesus, he's leading me down a different path for different purposes, different goals, different kind of results. If you hear verses like this, this Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says, wow, good work. And, and this other one, uh, 9, 4, and you say, ah, you know, these tasks that God has assigned. And you think to yourselves, oh, these works, these tasks, these good things, man, that's, that's for other people. I, that can't be Jesus speaking to me. I get that, okay? We all have these doubts that creep in where we say, I'm sure God means that only for the really good Christians, not for the nominal ones. And we have this doubt that creeps in, Right? If you, if you think that way when you read these verses, and you need to go back and you need to reread Ephesians 2 verse 10, the very first part of it said that we are God's masterpiece. Friends, I want you to realize this morning that the faith that you have in Jesus Christ is not a weak faith in comparison to anyone. But when you put your faith in Jesus, he does the same thing in you that he does in everyone else. What he does is he creates a masterpiece, a magnificent creation made by the creator. You are a result of a God who loves you, who created you in his image to be like him. And he made no mistakes in making you who you are. And he made no mistakes in saving you from where you were. Where you've been redeemed, where you've been renewed, that is the work of a master handyman. That's the work of our creator. And you are his masterpiece. You may say, well, what about my flaws, Jeff? Because I know my shortcomings. Relax. 
I know my shortcomings too, right? Well, none of us are perfect, but if we define ourselves just by our flaws or just by the things that keep nagging at us a little bit, I think that we lose out on understanding what God has done. In Christ, we've been created anew, spiritually transformed, renewed, changed for the better, so that in God's eyes, we can do the good work that he has always longed for us to do. If God says that in Jesus, we can do this work that he has for us, then I'm not going to trust in my own opinion because a flawed person doesn't have a perfect opinion, does he? He doesn't. And if you say that you're flawed as well, then you can't trust your own opinion about yourself. Have you ever thought about it that way? But what we can trust is the opinion of a perfect God who does masterwork in creating a masterpiece. If he is flawless in the way that he works and renews and creates and transforms, then I'm going to trust Jesus every time he's speaking about me rather than trusting myself. And I encourage you to do the same because when we do that, all of a sudden we see ourselves in a brand new light and we can do the things that Christ has prepared for us to do. He has made you and renewed you to serve him here and now in this life. I remember going to a a large conference at a church in Manitoba a long time ago and being blown away by the the eager volunteers at this conference. Everyone from the, the person who was greeting us at the door to the people at the registration table, the cooks, the servers, the worship team, the people who assisted in the sessions, the people who prayed over us at one point during the weekend, the cleaning team and the speaker, all of them were from this one church. Only a few of those people were paid staff, and the rest of them, dozens and dozens of them, were eager volunteers who loved to do good in the name of Jesus. It became obvious to me that these people all took very seriously the work that God had given them to do. No job was too big, and no job was too small. No job was too important or unimportant, too significant or insignificant. These people understood that as followers of Jesus, they had been assigned a task. And if that task was greeting someone at the door or cooking food or, or bringing out pillows and blankets during one of the session for an, an illustration, then they were going to joyfully carry out that task because they wanted to do everything they possibly could to build the kingdom of God here on earth. I just thought like, that is such a wonderful example. It stood out to me for years thinking like, I want to be a person who serves God as eagerly as all of those dozens of people did that were a great example to me. Here's a question, though, about this uh, verse, 9 verse 4. It says that we are to quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by God. Why does God tell us to do it quickly? I think it's because in this verse it says the night is coming. Now, the night represents death, right? Like we're alive right now where the light is shining in our lives. And, and when the night comes, our eyes are closed and we live no longer, right? Basically, Jesus is saying here, your, your life isn't eternal on earth. I have a time for you here, but I want you to make the most of the time I'm giving you. Have you ever heard yourself say or think, you know, I think I'm really going to begin to live for God after I, and then fill in the blank. You don't have to put your hands up, but have you ever... Have you ever heard yourself think or say that? Like once I cross this point in my life, that's when it's going to become real. That's when I'm really going to dig in, right? Maybe it's I'm going to really start to live for God after I graduate from high school or after I get my college degree 
or after I get married, or after I pay off my car, or after my kids are a little bit older, right? Or, or after I retire. After, after, after. Man, we don't have unlimited time here on earth to do the work that God has planned for us to do. Psalm 39 says, Lord, you have numbered my days. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. Remind me that my time on earth is brief. So if we keep saying after, 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 we're actually going against this piece where Jesus says quickly doing the tasks that God has assigned to us. When I think of doing anything quickly, I think of a person who is urgent, who's committed, opportunistic, eager, excited, and even decisive. This is the attitude that Jesus operates with when it comes to doing what is honoring to his Father. He doesn't delay and he doesn't hesitate. And this is the attitude that I want to copy, that we need to copy when it comes to understanding how we're supposed to respond to the work that God has for us. As I was thinking about this message from Jesus about doing work for God and doing it quickly, it made me think of one thing that I've, I've kind of noticed myself praying more and more often lately. I've been praying to God, telling him, God, my life is yours. Like, your will, that's what I want to see done in my life. Now, I pray that not because I'm, I'm perfectly submitted to God or always willing, honestly, to do all that God has for me, but I pray that because I want to be submitted. I want to be willing without hesitation. I want to be like Jesus in his attitude towards the tasks assigned to him by God. In verse 5, it feels like Jesus is kind of acting quickly to do the work that God has assigned to him. And it comes out in a positive statement. Verse 5 says, but while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. What Jesus is saying here is, as long as I'm here on earth, I'm committed to doing the work my Father has assigned to me. I am guiding people to trust in me and to know my Father through me. Now, even though this is a statement that Jesus is making about himself, this is actually something that we can share in. Did you know that in Matthew 18 verse, or 8 verse 14, Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world? So Jesus first says, I am the light, but he also says, you are the light. So this this statement actually isn't all that separated from Jesus to us. There is a a real serious connection here. Like the same thing Jesus says about himself is what he says about us. Which is interesting because a few weeks ago in John 8 verse 12, Jesus said something very similar. He spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because why? You will have the light that leads to life. So what Christ brings into this world, he actually gives to us that that light may live in us so that we will then, as 8.14 said in Matthew, we will give it or shine it into the lives of others. So Jesus shines into our lives, but once that happens, we're meant to share or reflect that light into the lives of others. We can have our minds made up just like Jesus, that as long as we live, we will share the truth about God with others. I just, I read things like this and it kind of, it kind of almost doesn't make sense because I look at myself and I see all the limitations. I don't know if you've done this as well, but I I think of all my flaws. I think of all my shortcomings. I think of all the reasons that disqualify me from doing anything that could possibly please God. And maybe you're like me, but we're seeing here today 
When Jesus says, we must do the tasks assigned us, he's not just saying, oh, come on, guys, we can do it. It's not just like a a, a happy-go-lucky kind of statement, but it's actually theologically correct. Christ has the light. He's given it to his followers. And as we receive it, we are empowered to do the same work that Christ came to do. The assignment is to him and to us. And I think that's amazing. And I hope that that is something that motivates you more than it intimidates you. See, after Jesus had this little chat about the power of God being seen in this blind man and the urgency that we are to have in doing the tasks assigned to us by God, the passage continues with the miracle, okay? So verse 6. Then he, that's Jesus, spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was and others said, nah, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go and wash yourself or go into the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed, and now I can see. Where is he, they asked. I don't know, he replied. So sure enough, Jesus said the power of God would be seen in this man today, and the power of God was seen in that man. He had been healed by the power of God. Jesus was absolutely right about this man who was blind from birth. Jesus carried out the task that God had assigned to him in this man's life in that moment. The passage continues, verse 13. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, how could he be an ordinary sinner or how could such an, how, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. I love what happens here in these few verses. This miracle is causing even some of the ultra-religious Pharisees to consider that Jesus might be more than they had originally dismissed him to be. For the first time, there's an obvious disagreement amongst the Pharisees about who Jesus is. This is a good thing. Because we, we read this a, a few weeks ago that Jesus came to bring a sword, right? A division. He came to help people understand that there's a difference between followers of him and people who do not follow him. And we're seeing that in this group called the Pharisees. Verse 17. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how, we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough. Ask him. 
So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? They asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed. I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Well, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. What a crazy turn of events, right? Like this passage is just wild. Remember at the beginning of this passage, Jesus said that God's power would be seen in him, referring to this blind man. Through what the man can now see, or from what, from what the man who can now see just said, we can tell that he has totally seen God's power. When the Pharisees complain that they don't even know where Jesus comes from, the blind man makes such a logical conclusion. He, when he said, he healed my eyes. We, don't, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. That is so logical, right? But he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. I, I love that. It just makes so much sense. The blind man, I believe that in this moment, he saw the heart of God the Father in Jesus, who he didn't realize at this point was God's son. He saw God's heart that day because Jesus was what? He was faithful to perform the tasks that his father had assigned to him. Isn't it awesome that someone who's faithful to God, the power of God is seen in their life. That's a big point, friends. We need to catch that one today. He also saw God's power. The blind man knew that historically no one who was born blind from birth was suddenly able to see. Therefore, he concludes, if Jesus wasn't from God, there's no way that he would have been able to have his sight restored. So again, this man saw God's power that day because Jesus was faithful to perform the task God had assigned to him. The man who is healed is thrown out of the synagogue simply because he is speaking in favor of Jesus. He doesn't even say Jesus is the son of God. But these Pharisees are so threatened by another authentic power source, Jesus Christ, who obeys his father, that they, in their insecurity, they kick this man out of the synagogue. Now Jesus catches wind of this. He hears what happens. So verse 35 says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. Now the Son of Man, just so you know, once again, when Jesus says that, these people would have understood that this is like the anointed one, the Messiah, God's sent Savior. So when he's asking him, do you want to believe in the Son of Man? He's saying, do you want to believe in the Messiah? The man says, I want to believe. Verse 37, you have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. 
What what a glorious response. The quick faith of the man who has been healed is so lovely. He believes in Jesus and he worships Jesus on the spot. He doesn't say, well, when are we starting a Bible study? Maybe I'll come check it out. No, he understands. He recognizes there is real power here. This is a power that is from on high. This is from God. And I'm speaking to the one who I've been waiting for, who I've heard about my whole life. Through the healing, the faith, and the worship of this man, indeed, God's power has been seen in him. His life has been transformed. Verse 39, Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. This is perhaps, I say this every Sunday, but this is perhaps one of my favorite passages in the Bible, one of my favorite verses, okay? Because this verse is huge. It's like Jesus is giving us uh, a reaffirmation or a rewording of his mission statement right here. He has come to this earth to set the record straight. Jesus is here to make sure people know where they stand with God, whether they are in line for a reward or a punishment for everlasting joy in the presence of Jesus or everlasting sorrow eternally separated from the King of Kings. Jesus is letting the world know that we aren't all the same. Some of us understand our need for Jesus and some of us don't. We think, nah, I don't need that guy. People who know their need for Jesus are the ones that he's giving Sight to, spiritual sight. He's opening the eyes of their hearts that they might be free. He's forgiving our sins because we realize our need for him and he's taking away our spiritual blindness, opening our eyes to a whole new life, a whole new existence, a whole new purpose with Jesus Christ. But others insist that they are just fine without Jesus. In their arrogance, they remain spiritually blind. They are ignorant about their own sin and blind to their need for Jesus' forgiveness. This spiritual blindness that they stay in, it's that blindness that condemns them. So even though Jesus could have been saying these things to anyone because these thoughts, this teaching, it applies to everyone in the whole world, the Pharisees are still kind of lurking nearby and they detect that Jesus is, is talking about them in this very thing that he said here in verse 39. Verse 40 says, Some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are are you saying that we're blind? So what they're really asking Jesus is, Jesus, are you saying that we don't understand the truth about spiritual things? It's, It's kind of like... You know, heads are butting here. This is a major conflict for these guys. And Jesus' answer is so brilliant here. Verse 41, he says, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. In other words, if you acknowledged your need to be set free from your sins, I would accept you and I would forgive you. But because you don't think you need forgiveness for your sins from me, You remain condemned by your sins. So the way that the blind man and the Pharisees respond to Jesus in this miracle today, it couldn't be any more different. The Pharisees had a high and influential position. The blind man, he had a low position as a beggar. He was very needy. Yet that low position of the blind man ends up being to his advantage 
In Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So this was the advantage of the blind man. It's not that he was materially poor or physically blind. That wasn't the advantage. But the fact that he was understanding that he was spiritually poor, that he knew in his heart that he could never be whole on his own without the forgiveness of the Savior that he longed for. He understood that he needed Jesus to forgive his sins. He realized his need for Jesus. And that day, Jesus met his deepest need, not by giving him physical sight. This man would have been fine without receiving physical sight. That was the bonus. But what he really needed was spiritual sight. He needed his eyes to be opened within his heart. Let's just go all the way back here to verse 4 for just a moment. In that verse, Jesus said, we must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. I think that this verse is very, very central for this whole passage today. We've said it several times already in our John series, but we see again and again that Jesus is trying to incite faith in the hearts of people to believe in him as God's son. But here in verse 4, Jesus is including us in the work of inciting faith in the hearts of people to believe that Jesus is God's son. He's including us in the work of building faith in people to believe. He says, as we quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us, that's when God's power shows up. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to be reassured and and encouraged yet again today that you have been uniquely equipped to carry out the tasks that God has assigned to you. God gives you the ability, the courage, the love, and the desire, the desire to do the tasks that he has assigned you to do. And what God has assigned you to do is meant to shine his light into someone else's life. And this could happen any number of ways. You don't have to all drop what you're doing and and, and go and be a missionary on the other side of the ocean. You can just live your life right here, right now, where God has placed you in the most powerful and miraculous way, simply because you're saying, in everything I do, I want to do the work that God has assigned me. And the work is to shine his light, right? And it could be an act of kindness. It could be through simply being generous for praying for someone, whether it's in your head, whether you stop what you're doing at work and say, you know, we need to pray about this situation right now. And a coworker may be telling you something. Maybe it's by serving someone or giving your time in a unique way, sharing a meal with someone who you know is, is lonely, leading an effort here at church, reaching out to a neighbor, a coworker or a friend, offering godly advice to someone, offering your expertise. If you're good with your hands, if you know how to fix cars or build things or rewire stuff, and you think you can bless someone by doing those things, that is a God-given task. And that might be exactly what he has assigned you to do to shine your light. It may be through volunteering. It may be through something else that I haven't mentioned and so much more. But when you do any of those kinds of things and your intent is to honor God through what you're doing. You're allowing the power of God that has shone into your life to then be shined into someone else's life. That's a glorious thing. It's amazing that God would do that. And I want to share a story here to close about someone who did that. Last week we mentioned about Joe and Peggy Martin and just the the totally sad and tragic passing of Joe from a very serious heart attack. But I remember 
Joe was a guy I always looked forward to seeing when he would come and visit our church. I remember the first time that Joe and Peggy visited CFC after I had become uh, the pastor here. And that day, I remember just being so intrigued with Joe because he did three incredibly simple things. Like when I say simple, I mean simple. Not extravagant, not audacious, not wild and crazy. Simple things. But those three simple things encouraged me so much. Let me tell you what he did. When Joe and Peggy got here, I don't even know if I got a chance to, to meet them before the service started. But as, as it started, Karen and I were up here. And I remember just saying, oh, there's new people here. Cool. And I saw Joe. And through the whole time we were singing, he smiled. That's all it was. That was the first thing that he did that was so simple. But I thought to myself, man, this guy loves the Lord. Because if you're willing to smile through a bunch of songs, maybe ones that he didn't even know because this isn't his home church, yet he took such joy in praising God that he couldn't wipe the smile off his face, I thought, okay, this guy's pretty awesome. As I was preaching later on in the service, I remember looking around. I always look at people. I know exactly what you're all thinking. No, I'm just kidding. But I remember looking at Joe because it was so easy. Like, he was leaned in and his... his, his chin was resting on his fist and he had his elbows on his knees. He was leaning forward and like, it's like he didn't even blink. He was so laser focused on hearing every word that I said. And it's like, I thought to myself, man, this guy really loves the word of God. Like he's keyed in laser focused, locked in. Like there's nothing that is steering him away from just giving his full attention to learning everything he can this day. I just thought, wow, this guy is the real deal. And then after the service, Joe took time. He came and sought me out, and he came to talk to me. He encouraged me by telling me what he learned that morning. And I thought, who is this guy? This is an, an anomaly or something like that. And he, and he personally encouraged me in the work that I was doing here in Kandu, simply because he had heard a couple of things from his relatives about what was going on in my life. I tell you these things because... Those three simple things that Joe Martin did, those were powerful things where God worked in my heart to reaffirm the faith that I had in him, to reaffirm, you know, my role here. I was still finding my way as, as a, a guy new to this lead pastor position. So I just praise God for people like Joe Martin. He was so faithful to carry out the tasks that God assigned to him. He wasn't going through the motions. He knew this life is the life that God had called him to live. And he lived it without hesitation. Joe doing what God had called him to do and living in the way he called him to live. It built me up and my faith was strengthened. And I felt like God was affirming in me the assignment that he had given me here. Three simple things, friends. Very simple things. But they were done for the glory of God and God's power was seen in them. One last time, I wanted to share this verse before we close with a song. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work.